0: This is episode 377 of the AWS podcast, released on July 5th, 2020. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast.
1: Hello everyone and welcome back to the AWS podcast. I'm Lesha here with you. Great to have you back and I'm joined not by one, but by two very special guests. I'm joined by Eric Kramer, who's a principal product manager here at AWS. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you for having me. And I'm also joined by Mark Bose, who's a principal engineer here at AWS working on Quantum Ledger Database. How are you doing, Mark?
0: Hey, great, thanks. Thank you for having us
1: pleasure because we are talking about something really really interesting we're going to talk about qldb or the amazon quantum ledger database and this is a technology that's designed to solve the unique challenges of maintaining an accurate history of an application's data changes now this was made generally available back in september 2019 and it's a purpose-built database that gives you a transparent immutable and cryptographically verifiable transaction log for businesses that need record keeping of any kind. Now, we are going to dive deep on the technology and we're going to dive deep on the business use case because this is a really interesting method of storing, retrieving and accessing information. So maybe, uh, Eric, let's start with you. What is the business driver behind this type of technology?
2: Yeah, so that's a, that's a great starting point. So at, like like all of our services here at Amazon, the really important focus for us is, is customer needs and customer problems and we started to notice a theme um, talking to our customers around really one word trust uh, with uh, both through blockchain scenarios where we're working with our customers but also in, in with our uh, database technologies and so trust for Digital properties, uh, I think a good example, you can think of this in terms of chain of custody. How do I move from a physical chain of custody for documents, for information, to a digital chain of custody? And what are the processes required? So think of um, papers, physical paper trails that you use in court proceedings, um, whether it's information about prior court court proceedings or perhaps property documents. a Chain of custody is important in, uh, for documents brought into that legal set, uh, setting to ensure that nobody who shouldn't have had access has changed the documents, that the documents are authentic. And we know a lot about physical chain of custody. We've been doing that for a thousand years. Um, in a digital world, it turns out that we've made uh, technology solutions in the space have been insufficient in many ways. Like in, And there's some very public examples of that where um, data is lost, um, data's been manipulated. And and that brings us to the second reason that and the second problem that we're solving for customers, which is regulatory compliance in this space. And there and there's a relationship between the two um, where we've made bad assumptions or bad designs and technology solutions for trust and building trusted systems and trusting data, um, we've seen a response to that now in the regulatory space. And so we see customers asking questions that align with these topics. How how do I ensure trust for my data, for my systems, uh, and for the data that I store there? And and how do I stay current with a, a very rapidly changing regulatory environment for requirements to maintain trust and the liability that I have for doing so? And so this really underscores the reason um, that've we've, we've developed QLDB and, and targeting the core customer problems.
1: And, and I think that's a really good call out is that these are some pretty significant problems that if we throw traditional technology sets at it, so, so you know if, if I was wake up in the morning trying to solve this problem, I'd probably reach for my friendly database and maybe try and tack on some stuff around that. And in a moment we're going to dive deep technically with Mark just to understand why we had to build something better fit for purpose. But before we do that, I just want to do a demystification. Um, Eric, let's talk about the quantum in the Amazon quantum ledger database. Is this quantum computing or is this something else?
2: (laughs) This is a question we actually get a lot. So we, we use the word quantum in, in the traditional meaning of the word. So this is the smallest, um, discrete change for a property. And so you can think of uh, the way that we store data in QLDB, which is immutable. In other words, we, we uh, track, we have versions, we track all changes to the data. We don't delete data. And when you change data, we store a new copy of the prior data. So with QLDB, you actually get a record of all of the discrete changes in your data over time. And so that's the reason that we use the word quantum. Um, you could think of QLDB, a document in QLDB, as having the quanta or the state of all changes to to the document.
1: Gotta love the English language where words have many meanings. So, Mark, let's come to you and let's talk about the the, the technical parts of this. Um, you know, like like I sort of uh, somewhat jokingly said, you know, if I if I just grab a relational database, have some uh, change data set tracking going on, maybe try and lock down my security call it good, um, it's not really good. So what were some of the stuff and the innovations you had to think about around QLDB to make it really fit the job?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, maybe just putting the, the immutability on pause for a moment. So, so QLDB is a journal-first database, right? And what that means is that every transaction is first recorded in a durable log, and and that's the source of truth. So the, the log is is the journal. And, and that's, that's quite a bit different to how a lot of other databases work. Many of them use some sort of write-ahead log internally for various performance reasons, but in QLDB, the, the journal itself is really front and center. And uh, we've spoken about this quite a bit uh, in, in the past in our reinvent talks, but w- way back when, many years ago, when we were doing record-keeping just as a civilization, we'd have a series of transactions that were recorded uh, in, some sort of, in some sort of book, you know, a ledger. And, and then and second to the transactions, we maintain a summary of, you know, the changes to, uh, to various bank accounts or whatever we might be recording in the ledger. Yet when, when we got to the digital world, uh, storage was just far too expensive to do that. So we ended up just keeping that summary. But so KLDB has already gone back and revisited that decision. And, and we keep every single changes, as Eric was talking about. So so coming back to this journal, we have this journal. It records all the transactions. And that journal is what we say uh, it's recording an immutable set of transactions. Right. So every time something changes, all we're already doing is putting a new fact on the end of that journal. And that fact is hashed and incorporates the hash of the previous transaction. So in this way, we're building up a chain. And this gives us the property that nothing in that chain can be, can be tampered with. So you can't insert a fictitious transaction. You can't change the results of any transaction. Or you can't delete the transaction. There's, there's no change you can make that will not break the chain. So that's really kind of the core, the core thing that our product is built upon. Now, you know, this, this idea is, is not something that, that we came up with. Uh, this, is, this is really part of the innovation that blockchain gave us. But blockchain solving some other problems such as decentralized trust that KeyDB is not trying to solve. So, you know, as Eric was saying, we, we listen to our customers and uh, our customers have been asking for us to give them, you know, something to do with blockchain, but they didn't really want the hassle of, you know, dealing with distributed transactions. And, you know, they were struggling with performance and how hard it was to operate. And kind of reading really between the lines, what we realized is they just really wanted a you know, a database that had tables and indexes and, you know, the, all the other sorts of things that you've come to love with databases. Yet at the heart of it, there's this immutable append-only log and they can cryptographically verify data in it to know that it hasn't been tampered with.
1: And let's dive into that a little bit because I think that's that's a really important part. It's, a, you know, to, to quote a, uh, a well-known movie, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. How how do you help customers show that they can prove the integrity how does qldb enforce that and and who is the customer trusting in this verification process
0: yeah that's that's a great question and something something that takes a little while to wrap your head around so uh you know this there's nothing there's no technique that we know of uh, that's going to prevent um you know garbage going into the database like at some point there's, there's some software or some human triggering a, an event in the real world, right? And that's going to be written into QLDB, right? So that, that's kind of one point in time. And then and then down the road, there's some other points in time where the authenticity of that data is challenged, right? And so that's really the question, like, what, what does it mean to prove that something is authentic? And it means that, that at that later point in time, you want to prove that it's it has the same value as when it was inserted into the database, right? That's kind of the way we can think about it. And the easiest way to do this in QLDB is, is just through our APIs. So what we do is provide an API called Get Digest, and the digest returns a value that represents the sum contents of the database at a point in time, right? And later on, what you can do is take some data that was recorded in QLDB from before that digest, and then using another API, we'll give you a mathematical proof that shows that the the document being verified is covered by that digest. So that's that's the mechanism. Like for customers who who want to have very um, you know very strong uh, claims with regards to authenticity, we expect them to be grabbing these digests at at some sort of interval and storing them in a in a place of their choosing. And then later on, they're, they're able to use our APIs in the stored digest to prove the data is untampered with. So that's a model that we have. Um, and kind of where customers store these digests isn't, isn't super relevant. It just matters, you know, that, that they trust where, that, that uh, you know, wherever they've chosen to store, it cannot be tampered with. So you can imagine that could be printed in the newspaper, put it on Twitter, or, you know, something that, that, that is public and, you know, test that this was the, you know, the, the sum contents of the QLDB database at some point in time.
1: And, and I think that's the important point here is these are these are mathematical proofs and provable proofs. <laughs> it's not saying trust us, she'll be right. These are mathematical uh, algorithms that are applied to data sets that yield consistent results.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, uh, unless, unless somebody has broken, you know, what we know about modern cryptography, then, uh, then you know, as long as we can hand up that proof, then then it shows that that document is authentic with respect to the digest. Uh, KillDB provides um, some kind of lighter weight controls around uh, mutability. Like one example, you know, Eric was saying that every time we change a document, what's actually happening is we're generating a new revision of that document, and, and there's a the version number that is incremented. So, so every single document in QLDB has an ID and a version number. And as you change it, which might be a modify or a delete statement, you're generating a new revision of that document, which, um, which will have the same ID, but a, an increased version number. So a lighter weight version of um, verifiability in QLDB is to simply look at the version number. And for, you know, for many customer use cases, where they're just using the, the database as a system of record, you know, it's sufficient for them to just assert that the the version has not been changed since some point in time. And for very simple use cases where you're just recording facts about the real world, you would expect many documents to simply be at version one, right? Because because that's all you're doing. You're saying, hey, this thing happened. You put it in the database, and it should never it should ever not be on version one.
1: And Eric, let's let's come back to you because I think based upon some of that conversation, it's important to really help us contextualize where we should use this and where someone would use QLDB. And maybe give us some examples of customers who have used this and and where it fits and and also where it shouldn't fit.
2: Yeah, so I think that's a a great question for focusing the technology to real use cases. Um, I think the first thing that I want to point out before I dive into a, a couple of customer examples is... A uh, question we get often, which is, how is this different than blockchain? Um, obviously, we borrow some key attributes from blockchain, and, and the cryptography and verifiability, and and we're often marketed in that category, and so we get that question. Um, and Mark, Mark actually mentioned this, and I want to stress it. QDB often fits well for similar workload patterns, and some of the examples I'll give you, you may think, oh, that sounds like blockchain, um, where the where the owner of the trust model, the owner of the system is is a single owner, is centralized, where I don't have a complex kind of decentralized multi-party trust issue. QLDB is a great fit. Uh, it's, It's less expensive. It has some higher performance characteristics. And we think you can deploy more quickly if the use case fits that centralized ownership model and, and I'll, I'll give you an example of that in a, in a second here. Um, now, where you have a kind of canonical blockchain use case, like I have a supply chain where I have many components of the supply chain that are all over the world, and I want each of them to kind of own their own technology stack and contribute to the chain in a very decentralized way with no dependencies on each other, and we're all going to share a cost and share ownership of the system, well, then QLDB is not a, not a great fit. That's a great fit with a blockchain, with a traditional blockchain. So we think of this, is it a centralized owner of the system, or is it there really a requirement for de- decentralization as, as a way to boil that down? And so if we take that now and think about the use cases that we're seeing, um, we have three kind of categories where we really see our customers concentrating uh, so the first we call system of trust not surprisingly as trust is kind of core to our uh, to the problems uh, that we're solving for customers and uh, system of trust is uh, asano who's a, a startup company who was a very early adopter of KldB who's had a lot of traction and, um, with the system and has some public use cases for, that you could view um, uses the system for, as, as a core part of their regulatory compliance service product offering. And so what they do is make it easy for large enterprises to subscribe to a digital service that lets them honor a regulatory compliance for things like GDPR, for example, uh, or California privacy laws. Um, but also this service helps them stay current, stay abreast of these things by offloading uh, the compliance requirements to Asano. Asano manages that for them. And Asano uses QLDB as a core part of the trust that they're offering to, to, these, to their own customers. Um, and you could imagine some of the benefits of QLDB around provenance of the data that stored the actions that are taken. Did this customer opt in or opt out? When did they do it? And can you prove it? Because these things tie to liability uh, for enterprises uh, and increasingly so 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 that's a, a good example of the system of trust concept where qldB is providing provenance verifiability lineage as a kind of first-class property of the system and it's worth noting that really the difference that that an asano for example is getting by adopting qldB as as opposed to a generic database is that that trust model is built as a a first-class property of of QLDB, of the database. Trust is built in, it's not an application that Asano had to build on top. They didn't have to make their application immutable. QLDB at the the database storage level is immutable, which reduces the time and complexity of developing the application, and of course, lends itself to to the verifiability, the trust model that you get from the service itself, from the technology. So, so that's a, that's a really common um, use case pattern that we're seeing. And we have a number of customers uh, that we kind of classify that way. The, the next one um, is, it sounds like a fairly classic uh, use case for blockchain. We call it asset chain, and it's really about products uh, lifecycle. So companies that build products and sell them to customers and want to both track and engage that product's life cycle, the interactions with that product across multi-parties, whether it's the consumer, the owner of the product, or its service interaction with the product over a full lifespan that could be many years. So uh, the classic example of this is one of our customers, BMW. And so BMW is using QLDB as the heart of uh, their application for sharing information across their for vehicles that leave the factory, go to are distributed to their dealers and then are sold to customers and then are resold by customers to new customers um, in third- party resales. and if you think of the whole life of the vehicle, the insurance insurers involvement with the vehicle, leasing with the vehicle um, and you know customers reselling their vehicle to second parties and how do they share information that traverses personal like my trips, to um third-party interests like were you driving how much did you drive the vehicle is the mileage really accurate and true are you is the information you're sharing me about the vehicle authentic so these types of questions um, lend themselves to the properties of killdb and again what bmw got from killdb is those properties as a first class part of the database system itself stuff instead of having to build that layer into their own application and then finally we have a category we call financial ledger which again we think is a really natural alignment to our sort of ledger journal ledger accounting paradigm and it fits nicely in 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 the financial world and you can imagine how QLDB's properties have a strong affinity to keeping books, keeping balances. A lot of the uh, companies that we work with, like Klarna Bank in this space, plan to use QLDB around digital payment systems. One of the advantages that QLDB brings that we haven't talked about here actually is a really strong serialized, serializable isolation for concurrent transaction processing. Um,
1: but maybe, at scale, maybe let's jump let's jump into that because I think uh, I think maybe Mark, let's let's dive into that concurrency control because I think uh, Eric raises a good point. What is concurrency control, and and why would it be important in this type of use case?
0: Yeah, right. Uh, so I mean, concurrency control is really really around the idea that there are multiple things going on, right, and some of them are going to conflict with each other, and and only one should succeed, whereas others are completely independent. So the classic example here. Uh, is is you know some sort of banking application where you know individuals have accounts and accounts have balances and and then a particular you know member of the bank may only have a hundred dollars left. right? so so this this uh, individual is trying to you know pay his bill or something and and he he needs to settle up with two parties. So two tra- two transactions are initiated, both trying to get rid of his last hundred dollars. And and obviously, only one should succeed, right? Because the the second one will put him into negative 100, or worse. uh, You know, the bank could lose 100 by by you know setting his account to zero for both of those transactions, right? Because they're all going to start, and they're going to read the current amount, they're going to deduct 100, and then and then write the new amount, which should be zero. So there's there's many ways this can go wrong, and this is a pretty, I think, classic and uh, and well understood problem. And different database technologies give you different tools. Um, so like like one classic example here is doing pessimistic locking. So in, in a database such as MySQL, you'd use something like Select for Update. And what that means is that the you know the records that I am about to read are are not going to be locked by me and me alone. And at some point later, I release the lock. So the way this plays out in the real world is one of the transactions starts and gets a lock and completes and deducts the $100, whereas the other one kind of queues up behind it. And later on, when it gets the lock, it sees that you have insufficient funds and then rejects the transaction. A pessimistic system work well enough, they they can be kind of tricky to, to get right because you have to go and think about all these places you have to acquire the lock. And, and everybody needs to play the same gentleman's agreement. But they they tend to have this unfortunate property at scale where um, as the database becomes overwhelmed, you can kind of get zero throughput, which is not so great. So a different technique is called optimistic locking. And and the idea here is that um, the database kind of resolves the business constraints at the end. So what you might say is, you know, update the amount provided you have enough money and the database will ensure only, only one goes through. Um, this can be very tricky to get right. So, kind of a weaker, a weaker version of this, but that is gives you correct results, but lower lower concurrency is to use some sort of version number. So, what you might say is, I, you know, I'm going to read uh, the the person giving the money away's account, and I'm going to see not only his account balance but also a version. And when I set the new balance, I assert that the version has not changed. Right. So, this uh, this kind of technique, optimistic concurrency control also requires that developers go and make sure that every single one of their interactions with the database obeys this you know, version number and they check it all the time and they condition the up on it. But it does have the property that under load, you tend to make progress, which is great. So one way to think about concurrency in QLDB is it's like the optimistic concurrency control um, that we spoke about, but you don't have to pick the version numbers as a developer. So the programming model is you simply you know, write your transaction and you do the reads that you need to to do. So you go and read the account balances, and you do the writes that you need to do. So you go and update the account balances. But at the point of commit, only one will go through, and the other one will be rejected. And and this gives us uh, a an isolation level known as serializable, which basically means that it's as if only one transaction was running concurrently. That's the easiest way to think about it. Um, except as a as a developer, you didn't have to think about it, and Compared to serializable in other databases, there are some locks in QDB, so you actually get extremely good performance. So that's just this is just a pattern that you know we've been using you know, on top of traditional relational databases inside Amazon for a number of years. But if we kind of put it on steroids and it's made it the default. Um, you know, we do it for you. Uh, you know, way way to do to do concurrency, and we think it gives you correct results. It's an extremely flexible programming model, and you get really good performance.
1: And I think that that developer experience is key because when you're using new modalities or new storage types like this, you want it to be easy to do the right thing rather than the wrong thing. Now, there's a couple of other uh, technologies that may not be familiar to a lot of our listeners, but but are also really developer-centric, and they are Ion and Particle. Can you tell us a little bit about those and how they fit?
0: Yeah, sure. So let's start with Particle. So um, Particle is something that we developed at Amazon, and the easiest way to think about it is that it's SQL with the minimal set of extensions required to support nested content. So nested content just means that a particular, instead of being um, a table, you know, with rows, and rows have have specific uh, attributes or fields in them, any one of those fields can have additional, uh, an additional row in them, right, so it's nested. So one example might be, you know, a user having a bunch of addresses. So in a traditional database, you may need to have a users table and an, an addresses table, um, and then in the addresses table, you'd reference the user ID. Uh, in QLDB, you can do that, but you can also just nest the addresses as an array inside the user object. So we give you the flexibility to do either. Um, so so that's that's kind of the idea. We're a document database, yet we provide SQL. So, so SQL doesn't give you support for, you know, doing the sorts of things you're gonna wanna do with documents. Um, and that's where Particle comes in. It gives you the minimal set of extensions uh, to deal with these, um, this nest of content so you know you can go and filter uh, you can join you can uh, you know turn maps into into lists and you know all sorts of things um just just with sql it's, it's super intuitive to use a particle sql compatible so uh, if you know if you've got a bunch of experience with sql and and you, you come to killdb you'll just find that your muscle memory serves you well so that's one part of it and ion ion is uh, something also, we also developed at Amazon, and um, you know, it's in it Particle, are both open source. But the idea behind Ion is that we really like JSON. Uh, it's you know, self-describing, and it's ubiquitous, and it's pretty easy to, to use. But uh, there, are a couple of, there are a couple of things about JSON we don't like. So one example is, is a, a lack of data types, uh, for example, timestamps. Um, and another thing is, just some of the serialization is not so great. So ION solves both these problems by introducing additional data types and uh, providing a binary encoding for, for ION values. So if you, if, if I gave you an ION text uh, stream and I didn't use any of the additional data types, you would think that is JSON, right? So ION is uh, compatible with JSON until you start getting to some of these extensions. So for QLDB users, uh, you can look at QLDB as a, a, a JSON database, right, that just, uh, you know, supports flat values. And then you could dip your toes in and say, oh, what if I wanted to nest the content over here? Or, hey, maybe this, you know, one field should be, you know, using an Ion timestamp or a float or something like that. So, you know, we let customers uh, dip their toes in as much as they want. We're, we're big believers in Ion. Um, we think the type system, you know, really brings a lot. One of, the, one of the things we really like about uh, document databases is that you don't have to do as much gymnastics between you know, your application and the database. You can just say, this is how I've modeled my data in my Java code or whatever you're using. And you know, more or less, that's how it's going to be stored in the database. That's super cool. And without these strong types, you'd end up having to say, okay, well, I'm going to use you know, ISO 8601 for uh, timestamp encoding, and then I'm going to store them as strings in the database, right? And everywhere that you have a timestamp, you kind of look at it and there's this, uh, you know, understanding that's not really a string, it's actually a time. And then, you know, consumers of that data need to go and parse it and understand kind of the schema. And that kind of defeats that whole idea of, you know, JSON being self-describing. So, you know, whereas in Ion, you can, you can still do that, right? Nothing stops you doing that. But you could, you could also say, we're going to use the Ion timestamp type here. And, you know, the, the consumers and producers just, you know, just treat it like a, a native date time or whatever it is in their language and operators like greater than or equal to just work as you expect. So it's pretty neat. Uh, we just think it you know, it makes working with, with documents that much more uh, effortless and, and that's something we really enjoy.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it makes life a, a lot easier in many ways. Now, uh, Eric, uh, a lot of new things have come out since QLDB went GA uh, earlier on. So tell us a bit about what's changed.
2: Yeah, I think, I think there's two areas that are most notable. Um, so the first, and a, and a strong focus for us, of course, always is developer experience. And so we've uh, made significant progress in broadening uh, the support for our QLDB drivers, uh, making it easier to use Node.js, uh, .NET, Python, uh, along with our kind of first driver, which is, uh, which is in Java so and we'll continue to invest in that and continue to expand and and add, add Go uh, later this year the other area uh, the other kind of big feature of since we, since ga um which is which is in preview right now and and very soon will be ga in its own right is kdb streams so KillDB streams today and uh, its first release is supporting uh, stream to kinesis Uh, AWS Kinesis, and this isn't a really important feature for QDB because it gives a real-time, an ability to mirror the journal, the source of truth, as as Mark um, so eloquently um, laid out. It lets us stream that journal in real time and that supports a a significant number of more complex use cases that uh, you may not want to run directly against qldb so qldb is primarily a transactional engine providing source of truth providing a system of record Uh, but there's a lot of uh, analytical patterns that you would imagine running against the data stored in qldb or running audits against the transactions that may be better fit via a stream to Elasticsearch or a stream to a purpose-built database. So um, this is an important pattern for how we're guiding customers to think about using QLDB. And it also fits well, as I mentioned, purpose-built. It fits well in our overall strategy of using, of building databases and using databases for what they're they're best at, really focusing on the problem they're trying to solve.
1: And that, I, think, I think that's spot on. That's the challenge here is that I think as we move into more modern software development, we're really thinking deeply about the data stores and having the right data store for the right job. But then the communication between the data stores becomes the next question. That's where this streaming capability comes into play. Now, Eric, um, final thing. Obviously, a lot of uh, listeners and customers are looking at this technology and going, this is pretty new and um, I may have some, some questions or want some deeper insight. Where should they go to get more information and get some guidance?
2: Yeah, so, you know, aside from, from our, our common, um, you know, portals on Amazon, our documentation, we really encourage customers to reach out. Our QLDB outbound uh, email alias, outbound at amazon.com is uh, 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 We're we're happy to take direct requests for information. And of course, uh, I'm also happy to, to respond to interest or questions as, as a part of this podcast. Uh, I, I definitely will be sharing my email and I would love to get questions uh, about uh, QLDB and, and share my passion for it.
1: And we'll, uh, we'll share those in the show notes. Eric, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and uh, sharing what you know. Thank you. And Mark, thank you for joining us and really giving us that deep technical insights. Really been appreciated.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having us.
1: And thanks everyone for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place to do it. And until next time, keep on building.